Today's podcast is sponsored by LSC, a credit union service organization helping credit unions compete and thrive in the financial marketplace. LSC offers products and services designed to help credit unions meet the needs of current and prospective members. Customizable credit and debit card programs feature full service with detailed reports, top fraud security tools, and more. A top provider in prepaid services to credit unions nationwide, LSC offers instant issue and reloadable cards. LSC's five-star service and marketing support help credit unions easily nurture valuable member relationships. Visit lsc.net for more information. From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNY News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. Cindy Olson has seen the best of times and worst of times a company can experience. As a top executive at a Fortune 7 firm during the late 90s, she pioneered the use of technology in finding, developing, and keeping top talent. But within a few years, she faced the prospect of prison in the wake of a high-profile accounting scandal at the organization. The company? Enron. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Olson explains why she blames a poor culture for Enron's demise and warns the same fate may await those who think they're too successful to fail. She also shares some early signs your corporate culture may be in trouble, the components of a healthy culture, and more. Olson is co-founder of Choice Strategic Alliance. She addressed the CUNA Government's Risk Management and Compliance Leadership Conference in September. Can you tell me about your background and also what you're doing today? My background is I was um, 23 years with Enron. And I started in Omaha, Nebraska before uh, Enron really became Enron. It was Internorth at the time. And Internorth and Houston Pipeline merged to create Enron in the late 80s. And I actually was one of the first ones to move from Omaha, Nebraska, where Internorth was located, to Houston, Texas. And that became my 23-year career. I was used as a um, change agent across the company working closely with McKinsey because we had blended five different pipeline systems into one. And so Kinlay was creating a cu- one culture and, of course, all the efficiencies that go with the merger of similar kind of businesses. So that's my background. And I asked for HR in in 1999, and actually then what was on the uh, 20-person executive committee when Enron imploded. What I'm doing today kind of dates back to my background because what I've, I've discovered is that in the 18 years since Enron imploded, really we were so far ahead of everyone else, and, and even in the HR world, because we built the first HCM that was totally integrated in 1999 and 2000. And even today, you know, there, there really isn't an HCM that's much better than what we built back then. An HCM is uh, really an integrated HR system for onboarding, recruiting, uh, learning management, performance management, talent management, and it was important back then because none of that was integrated, so you had to enter data in, you know, five or six different places. And today, uh, most HCMs have all of that integrated so that you enter the data one time when the employee starts, and then that data just is transferred into the other parts of the system. I have formed 
thought leadership groups for uh, CHROs and CIOs across the country to bring kind of world-class next-gen thinking in terms of technology and particular in the HR world. And we have about 500 CIOs and CHROs in our communities in eight cities right now. What was Enron like initially when you first started there? Well, obviously, I was there before Enron was even created. So I got to be involved in the kind of creation. And early on, I got to know Ken Lay because I was one of the first people to move from Omaha. I mean, when we first started, it was like I said, five different companies that were merged into one. We were creating, you know, the best and breed for the pipeline industry at the time. And then as we grew, we kind of evolved into more of a risk management trading operation. Uh, but initially it was, you know, like any other company that grows through acquisition, it was more about change management and getting efficient and creating common systems. And on top of that, creating one culture. So it was fun, and it was kind of a person's dream to be able to really learn change management. And I worked very closely with McKinsey for all 23 of those years. So I got to learn the McKinsey kind of philosophy, and I felt like that really was important. As I've even come into the the roles I have today, I mean, I think that it's important to understand kind of the the data-based decision-making that McKinsey taught as, you know, we went across the company to um, manage change in all those areas. What were some signs early on that something wasn't right with Enron when things started to go south? You know, people always ask me that question. What happened to Enron is very, very similar to what happened in the financial crisis in 2007. And if people really understand that crisis, it was a run on the bank or it was a a liquidity crisis because of the credit default swaps that AIG and J.P. Morgan Chase and Lehman Brothers had all sold, but they didn't really have the cash to pay out because of the huge mortgage meltdown and all the credit default swaps that were really bought to cover the mortgage-backed securities. So um, Enron was similar. Uh, In fact, in November of 2001, I could not believe as we were starting to talk about filing for bankruptcy that we were going to file for bankruptcy. We had a million resumes in our system. We had just done an a, a employee survey where 75, 80% of our employees would recommend Enron as a place to work. So as far as early signs, that really didn't show up until November of 2001. And then obviously it was December 2nd of 2001 that we filed for bankruptcy. It was so fast. Can you kind of talk through the whole experience with Enron and what caused it to crash? It's a cautionary tale to uh, leaders that um, have a very strong culture and then decide to promote a leader that is extremely strong technically and innovative into the CEO role and they don't have the same value. So in a nutshell, Ken Lay was a true, one of the truly best leaders that I've ever seen. And I have many, many people say that, okay? He was, he was a very, very strong leader. But he and the board decided in 1999 that Jeff Skilling, because Jeff had come in as a McKinsey partner and then built Enron Capital and Trade, we were the most innovative company for the sixth year in a row, decided to promote Jeff to the CEO role. And I don't think any of us thought at the time that it was a huge deal, but we all realized that Jeff was very different from Ken. He was not a very strong people leader. 
Um, he was more analytical. He was arrogant. And so it was a contrast from the leadership style that we had with Ken Lay. And it was kind of a shock to see that in nine months, the perception of Enron had become that we were 40% more arrogant, 40% less trustworthy, 40% more self-serving in nine months. So the cautionary tale in, in what I talk about is we had an unbelievably strong company, a culture that was strong. And then as Jeff Skilling became a bigger and bigger piece of the leadership and ultimately the CEO, the company took on the characteristics and values that he had. So I think the lessons learned that I talk about is that culture matters. Uh, leadership is a big part of culture, and the culture is one of the biggest risk factors that I think people don't really pay attention to because they think it's soft. No, it's not soft, and it really can have a devastating impact to a company. And Enron isn't the first one or the only one that that's happened to. What are some early warning signs that your culture might be in trouble I think it's important to have a really strong pulse on the culture. A lot of companies, I don't think, really look at engagement, but more than once a year. And I think that because it can change so fast, that it's extremely important to kind of keep a pulse on that on an ongoing basis. And what, what the cautionary signs are is if you start to see changes in some of the engagement scores that you had previously. For instance, the whole idea of being more arrogant. I mean, we could feel it, but it was just because I thought because we were so good and we were on every magazine cover and we were fortune this and fortune that, right? But I think that a company that all of a sudden gets arrogant and they think they're smarter than they really are and the success leads them to believe they can't fail, I think that's when you have to start looking at there might be a problem. I've actually talked to CEOs about this, and they've come back and said to me, oh, my gosh, you're right, because I say, look, first time you're on a magazine cover, even if it's the local business journal, and all of a sudden your company's in the spotlight, there's the human side of all of us that thinks that, oh, you know, pretty proud. Then then the arrogance creeps in, and then you know, I saw it so clear at Enron, then you feel like you can't fail no matter what you do. And it creeps up on you. Those are the kind of signs that now, if I was in in an organization, I would really look at because it means that you're not really paying attention to what the employees are saying. And you think that, you know, that they don't get it when they tell you that something's wrong. Are there certain components to a culture of integrity and innovation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So in 2000, Kinlay, we received the most innovative company for the sixth year in a row, and we were the first company to ever receive that that top award by Fortune that many years in a row. And so Kinlay got all these CEOs from across the country, and I mean it was Goldman Sachs and American Express and Charles Schwab and Cisco Systems, CEOs that said, hey, can you come show us how you've created the innovative culture? So in my talk, I actually bring in two or three of the slides that I used when I went and showed those management teams what it takes to build an innovative culture. And there's there's really 12 components. It's very complicated. And I always tell people it's not for the faint at heart because you can't kill people when they, um, when they fail. 
And you've got to have an environment where people feel like they can try things and fail fast and then try something else. You have also have to have an environment where people feel like you're listening to them and it's a safe environment for them to solve problems outside of the normal processes. It's interesting because a lot of companies are so focused on controls, and not that we didn't have controls, we did, but you've got to have a balance of controls and then the ability to let your employees really think about things in a new and different way and try things. You wrote a book, uh, The Whole Truth, So Help Me God. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We had 25,000 employees at Enron that loved their jobs. It was really my account of Enron, the good and the bad, but I did talk about the good where nobody else was. And it really was more for the employees that spent their careers there and knew how great a company it was. It was kind of my therapy to kind of get it on paper because it was so uh, hard for all of us to understand how a company that was that great, we had a million resumes in our system when we imploded, everybody in the, one, in the world wanted to work for Enron, how could we implode? So because I'd been there, and I'm probably, because Ken Lay has now passed away, I'm probably the historian. I was there the longest and went the highest kind of, I was on the executive committee. So I felt like it was my contribution to, hey, this is really what happened. Everyone thinks we imploded because of accounting and trading, and that is not the reason. Our accounting, everything was blessed by Arthur Anderson. Our trading operation was so successful and so I ran the back office of Enron Capital and Trade. I knew we balanced the books every night. It was not a house of cards. It was very different. And I was there for 23 years, and I was at the top of the company. And I knew a lot of the employees because I grew up in that company. So it's a true perspective. I always tell people, I'm not lying here. I mean, I'm really telling you the truth. There were bad things, yes. I mean, any company has them. But Enron was really, truly a great company until it wasn't. Were you ever fearful that uh, you might be blamed for, for some of the things that went wrong? Oh, I was. Our phones were tapped when we moved out to Colorado for 10 years. Our phones were tapped. I was the first one to testify in front of the Senate and the House. And if you go back and watch those hearings, you'll see that I was being blamed for a lot of things, okay? I was on the 401k committee because I was a top executive and because I was there for so long and made a lot of money. And also because Kinley was my mentor, they were after me, quite frankly. So, yes, I was, but I knew that I had done nothing wrong. The 401k, they kept saying that we should have sold all the employee stock because we should have known that Enron was going to implode. And I always say, if we would have sold all the employee stock in the 401k and Enron would have come back, that would have been a problem too. Are there any specific memories that really stand out for you from that time? The best memories were how much the employees loved Enron. Okay, that those were the best memories. They did. They loved Enron. They came to work every day with a purpose they knew that they could go anywhere they wanted to be. And as Ken Lay said, Enron was truly a place you could use your God-given talents to do more than you ever thought you could. And I've got example and example and example of that. The bad memories are the day that we had to lay all, the peop- all those people off on December 2nd, 2001, when we filed for bankruptcy. And I stood in front of people that I had known for years and years and years and basically told them they had to leave 
and take all their things. And that was that memory will stick with me the rest of my life because it was the worst day of my life. It was so hard to see the faces of people that didn't have a clue that this was going to happen. And then, you know, try and figure out how to find them jobs. I jumped right in to try and figure out how to find them jobs. And J.P. Morgan Chase actually moved a whole division to uh, Houston to take advantage of the Enron talent. We were able to find people jobs, but that day was awful. It's the lessons learned, and it's the risk of being so successful that you you think you can't fail. That's cultural. I really think that companies that get to a point where they really feel like just because they're successful, they can do anything and it'll be successful, it's a risk. It's a bigger risk, I think, than your accounting risk or any other risk that you have is your cultural risk. And I don't think people totally understand yet how big culture is. It's getting talked about a lot more, I think, because I was just at a conference in Dallas day before yesterday where we talked a lot about culture and the employee experience and the employee value proposition. But companies that don't pay attention to that and really figure out what that culture uh, risk is and don't always judge a book by its cover because even if you think it's all bad, the thing I love to, to show people is there were a lot of good things about Enron and because it was so good, I just think that other companies need to take note that any company can fail if they don't really pay attention to their culture. How did this whole experience change you? Well, first of all, I became very arrogant. And uh, so I, I know what arrogance looks like. And I like to think that I am now a lot more humble and grateful of the things that I have and know that it's not me that's done it all. And so I think I've become a better person I think I've become a better leader, but I don't know that I'll ever, ever be able to be a leader in a company again because no one's going to put someone from Enron on their executive committee, right? But I do believe I'm a better leader because I listen and I'm a better person because I don't think it's all about me. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. This podcast was sponsored by LSC, a credit union service organization helping credit unions compete and thrive in the financial marketplace. LSC provides products and services designed to meet the needs of current and prospective members. Learn more at lsc.net.